the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show as we head into Hour 3. Delighted to have in studio with me Mr. Lewis Hallman. He's the Managing Director of Insight Analytics, LLC. Insight is spelled I-N-C-I-T-E. Analytics is spelled analytics. LLC spells itself. Welcome to the studio, Lewis. Seth, it's always great to be here. Thank you. Uh, usually you're here with your daddy, but he is in Europe so he'll be probably joining us again next week. Uh, before we get into some of the issues of the day, I just got to say something about uh, an event I saw you at Saturday night, and I haven't talked about it with the audience yet. Uh, and since you were there, you can um, you can fact check and contradict or <laughs> endorse. But we were at an event, a cultural event, uh, for uh, Kazakhstan and the uh, some Kazakhstan uh, musicians. And your dad has probably done more than anyone, certainly in the state and probably the country, in helping uh, improve ties, create ties, improve them uh, between the United States, Arizona, and the country of Kazakhstan. I think probably to the degree anyone in this audience has ever heard of Kazakhstan, it's by dint of the efforts of your dad. And uh, he goes over there and does a lot of um, does a lot of volunteer work there. Either my dad or Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, or Sa- yes, fair enough. Right in in a non fictional way, your dad. Right. Yes. No. You're right. <laughs> That's a fair correction. Did you know that they actually they changed the uh, tourism slogan in Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan, very nice. <laughs> did they really? Yeah, I, they did. Based on that, mm-hmm. no kidding. Um, and a lot of people, you know, will say, yeah, Hugh Holman talks a lot about Kazakhstan. I went to this event Saturday, and I, I get it. I get it. What a beautiful people, some of the kindest, maybe the kindest people I've ever met. The music was off the charts fantastic. I, I sent, I took some video of, of, was it a quintet? I think it was. Uh, and sent it to some professional guitarists and bass players. They were blown away. I know you, you just don't get to experience this kind of music generally in the United yeah. States. And, and, and for our audience, it's it's really uh, 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 traditional Kazakh instruments, which would be it's the, the closest really comparable thing that that I, I could describe to you is really kind of like Mongolian throat singing with with Bazookies. very interesting. Uh, uh, stringed instruments yeah. in a wide variety of, of sort of unusual percussive instruments. Yeah. Really, really fascinating kind of mix. But the people, so kind and nice. I've never been to a cultural event, an internationally diverse cultural event, where the people were nicer. I just I can't say enough about oh, how kind they were. I mean— That's always been my experience. They, they really are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. So I get it, is my point, I guess, is what I wanted to say. I didn't try the food. Did you have the food? Any food? It was, it was good. It was very good. Kazakh fare. I didn't. Have uh, it was. It was mostly catered. It was not traditional Kazakh. Oh, fare. it wasn't. There, oh, there would okay. be a lot more. Uh, uh, if it were traditional Kazakh fare, you'd see a lot more uh, salamis of various type. Maybe some kumis, which is fermented mare's milk. All sorts of weird things. Um, the, the the cuisine of Kazakhstan is something to behold. Let me assure you. Okay. No, I d- I didn't eat, but not because I I I had a 
had a um, uh, an a priori distaste for Kazakhstan fare. I don't know what it is. It's just I never eat in public um, at public events because I'm messy and things happen, and I had to say a word or two. So right. you know, can have mustard on your tie. No, right, <laughs> right, right, or all totally over the it. face or for. Anyway, it was good to see you there, and just for anyone that's ever given an opportunity to maybe travel there or have. Uh, they did mention, uh, I, I think that the, the band that was there has a YouTube channel. They're called Turin, T-U-R-E-N, I believe. Okay. It may be A-N. I would Google both and, and check and it, see what you could. Fantastic. It's Kazakh folk group. They're phenomenal. Yeah, off the charts. They did this interesting thing with the their version of a guitar. looked something like a bazooki, but probably not, mm-hmm. which is Greek. Where was, was the string tied to a wooden horse that right, operated yeah, they, like a marionette and the was like horse a is prancing. Show in part of it. it was really cool. Yeah, yeah and not with hands, right. but tied to the stringed instruments mm-hmm. like a marionette. Yeah, it was. It was. You just don't get to see things no, like that. Fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm now on Team Kazakhstan. Is all I'm here to say. Welcome after. aboard. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> I'll make your dad happy. What's on your mind today? You were talking. You came in full of loaded for bear, talking oh, to me about government subsidies. Well, it, it, it's your about. it's your monologues that, that do it to me, Seth. You know, you, you set the stage so well for the the entire three hours, and I I, I just you know listen and and get a peek at it sometimes early if you're gracious enough to send it along <laughs> and you 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 talked today about some uh some items pertaining to climate change yeah. and sort of the the bothersome notions around that okay. um and i i just learned of a of a subsidy program from the federal government a couple of days ago and if it it goes effectively like this if you are Assembling solar panels in the U.S. If you if you're building a factory to do this, you can if if you are able to produce a gigawatt of uh, solar panels per year, the federal government will subsidize your factory, the assembly side only, to the tune of seventy million dollars per year. And if you are then actually building the solar panels, right, the manufacturing side, the processing, the refining of the solar panels that make them into panels, not just sticking them together. That subsidy would net you a cool $1 billion per gigawatt. It's an enormous well of money. And this is all being done because there is this this notion that we need to move our grid over to use more green power, despite the fact that this causes structural issues with the grid because most green power doesn't have the kind of baseload capacity that something like coal or natural gas or nuclear would. Uh, we, We also then... See what, what we see here is a project to give billions of dollars to corporations that have a good product that is a profitable product that people ostensibly want. This is a massive corporate subsidy in the name of feel-good righteousness, and it, it is appalling to me that the the party that claims to hate capitalism that that says that the the free market is bad is the same party that turns around and engages in the most cutthroat and fearsome display of crony capitalism that I've ever seen. Between this kind of, of massive runaway subsidy or things like the CHIPS Act, right? The CHIPS Act is an $80 billion exercise in taking the richest companies in the world, NVIDIA, Intel, that are effectively selling the picks to our digital gold rush in the most enviable profitful position that anyone in history has ever been in, and they've decided that as a national security concern, they need $80 billion more billion for us to subsidize the construction of their facilities so that they can produce 
massive amounts of chips and sell them to us at a profit. Now, one of the phrases that usually comes up in these kinds of discussions is that it's not a good idea for the government to pick winners and losers. What it sounds to me more like than anything else is that it's the government trying to make a winner out of a loser, but it's going to continue to require the shoveling of public money, largesse. Uh, It's going to take the continual um, uh, endowment by the government uh, of 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 monies because these things are not self-sustaining. People don't want this stuff generally. I I, I point out that almost any government action, you know, when when we're spending money around in a in a zero one sense, if as long as we're engaging in any subsidy at all, we're picking winners and losers. Yeah. There are businesses that get the subsidies which are then artificially more competitive and there are businesses that don't that then become artificially less competitive. And it's the business of centralizing and distributing the subsidies, the very notion of of what we think of as planned economics, which is this devastating consequence and and is itself the very thing that then creates the the corruption that we see that the left gets mad at and blames capitalism for. The the inequality is not a natural fault of capitalism. It's a natural fault of, of humanity, that we are born in poverty. But capitalism, free markets, are, are really the only way that we've found that can actually raise people out of poverty in a long-run sustained way. But when we put our fingers on the scale in the name of whatever the crusade du jour is, we ruin that process, we make a mockery of it, and then that rotten thing becomes the, the, the bastion that we all have to defend. Defending capitalism in the United States right now is very, very difficult because we have to do it in an environment in which the, the, the principles of free marketeering are continually betrayed and sold under. In the name of subsidy. That would be a great conversation to have when we come back. I'd like to talk about that, the assault on capitalism, and what this government subvention ultimately is going to do, because it seems to me it's a self, a self-replicating or reticular loop, because at some point these companies will probably collapse once the subvention ends. And I also want to talk about the perceived notion that we need them in the first place. So if we can talk about all of that when we come back. I'd love to. Is this that group? Lewis Hallman is my in-studio guest. Lewis, I'm sorry to put you through this. It's like um, having company over when a couple is fighting, you know, having having a husband and wife or a couple inviting a, a friend over for dinner in the midst of a major fight. So what and, am I refereeing? Well, you don't have to referee it, frankly. Uh, it's just that throughout the Christmas music season, which began on 12-1, Young David and I have been at daggers drawn against each other, and there's been a lot of a lot of give and take and a lot of push and pull, mostly by him. I, I just basically laid out the music that I thought would be good for the audience, knowing the audience, having been in the business for almost 20 years, um, and he likes to kind of throw in these ancillary odd oddities to be weird. Do you know what that was? I, I don't. You really don't. It's fine. Do I need to explain? Does no. Lewis know what that was? No. This is what the government is. This is what Lewis is talking about. The government throwing force behind something saying you need this, you want that, when people don't need it and don't want it. And and let's get to the capitalism part of this, Lewis. But before we get to that, back me up once 
a little bit on this whole notion of why we're doing this in the first place. These are is this a demand a part of a demand on behalf of an ideological position on the need for these kinds of these kinds of subventions? Do you mean the need to play Christmas music from De- December 1st onwards, or are we talking about capitalism? We're talking about capitalism and the money we're sending to solar companies. <laughs> so, so <laughs> well played. Part, so part of this is a, is, a, is a consequence, I think, of, of, of really just the, the expansion of federal power. It's the, the fact that no one got elected to Congress by promising that they would do nothing. And... It, it, no one especially got to, prong, uh, to elected to Congress by uh, having very, very powerful, well-connected friends and then not shoveling the pork barrel a little bit for those friends. Um, and, and, and that indeed, I, I think, has been kind of the story of American democracy for the last hundred years. If you look at, at how we, we finance the federal government itself, you know, in, income taxes weren't around until the 20th century. The federal government, as far as infrastructure spending goes, I think built a grand total of two roads before the Civil War, and that was the entirety of it, maybe one. Um, very, very limited. So so something has clearly happened uh, uh, recently that's then changed how we, we, we spend money as a society and, and the role of government within the society. It's not just the U.S. We see this everywhere. Um, something, I, I, I think, you know, to do with the the industrialization of, of communications technology, the telephone, all of these other things that, that makes a big bureaucratic governmental structure possible in the 20th century in the way that it wasn't in the 19th century. The the notion, too, is that there is an interesting green... It's not an interesting green movement. It's interesting how fast and dominant the green movement has become in this country in a relatively short period of time. We've been flirting with it since the 70s, perhaps, in a way. But since about 2000 forward, it's taken off at uh, exponential rates. You know, there is kind of an in vogue reference to think of the the modern green movement as as kind of a death cult. Um, And... I, I don't know that that's – like that makes for a great bumper sticker. I don't know that, that it's entirely fair. Uh, I, I will say that it is preoccupied with a strain of apocalyptic thinking okay. um, very much. And and this is something you know that, that is culturally very common in the West. You know, we, we've been, I think, uh, uh, predicting the apocalypse since John wrote Revelation in the second century. Um, and so, so, you know, to me, this is, this is very little new. Um, the, the issue, though, is that – Everyone seems qualified to to talk about it. It, it. It's as if they've taken the the notion or the possibility of a of a threat, uh, and and taken that uh, as a mandate that we must do something, irris- irrespective of whether or not what we do is actually effective. And and what frustrates me so much about the climate change conversation is that the the right is tarred unilaterally with the this like brush of oh you're climate change deniers you don't believe in science you know with the same kind of nonsense we heard during the pandemic which ultimately i think very much vindicated the conservative position of scientific inquiry uh but nevertheless well uh, let's come back to that go ahead keep going i want to come back to that too though. so go so we you know we we're, we're constantly you know toted as, as these these science deniers and and that's not accurate at least not not from my position i i have no issue noticing that the weather is more extreme now than it usually is is this is this caused by humans i'd even concede that point very likely yeah sure 
Now, the question, though, is not whether climate change exists and whether it's caused by humans. It's can we do anything about it? What are the costs of doing things about it? And what are the other trade-offs that we face as a society? Does doing something about this, this preclude us from all of the other things that we need to do as a society and a civilization to stay whole and healthy? And, and there yeah, is not keep, keep going with that thought. Yeah, and, and and this 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 exact problem I think reveals the weakness in in sort of the modern governmental academic complex as it exists. In that we have a a massive penchant to take these grand sort of utopian uh, projects and run forward with them, but we are very reticent to have a, a conversation where we hash out the details between experts across disciplines where we hash out how do we actually deal with this. Instead, what we'll do is we'll take the one discipline that seems to be most closely related to the issue at hand and give them unilateral power. We did this with COVID where the, the epidemiologists were able to supersede the doctors, the psychologists, the economists, and all of the other people that, that make our society work, the educators, so on and so forth. And here we see, again, this uh, uh, monopolizing uh, uh, tendency to focus all effort on climate change at the expense of every other human endeavor and human problem. And in doing so, you get some of the weirdest uh, uh, exercises ever. The, the, the German economy, I think, is a fascinating case for this. They count so they, they switched over massively to solar panel. They shuttered their nuclear power plants. And in doing so, they so screwed up the base load of their system that they have to burn lignite en masse, which is a watery, much more polluting version of coal. Except they, only, they count all of that lignite as green energy because it's filling the gaps in their solar system. It's like the, it's Enron-style accounting with their carbon numbers. It's ridiculous. Well, the thing about... Making that I get nervous about is because of how closely we not just lived through, <clears throat> but analyzed a lot of the data throughout and during the COVID hysteria was the continually shifting apocalyptic, apocalyptic predictions. And nowhere have we seen this more than when it comes to the crisis with the climate. And I wonder if we might just talk about how real that crisis is, how apocalyptic we should be thinking, how apocalyptically we should be thinking about that when we come back just a, in just a moment. Could, Let's do it. Could we talk about that? Lewis Hallman from Inside Analytics LLC is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Lewis Hallman is my guest. Uh, talking about government subsidies, uh, particularly in um, the green part of the economy or the increasingly uh, greening of the economy and the perceived problem it's meant to address. And one of the things that comes up here, Lewis, is um, the increasingly voluble demands that we do more and faster over increasingly apocalyptic predictions and that always makes me nervous because I've seen what has been done with these apocalyptic predictions in the past with other either health or human crises. It's also been true, frankly, with the Green Movement since at least the 1970s, whether we were talking population bombs, whether we were talking uh, nuclear meltdowns, whether we were talking any number. We were talking bears. We were talking polar caps. We, anyway, we now hear things ranging anything from – we have 12 years to deal with this. We have six years to deal with it. How seriously apocalyptically 
are are we facing um, are we are we facing extinction? That's their word, not mine. So, extinction. Um, I, I I would say we're we're, we're likely not. We're, okay. we're we're likely not facing species wide extinction right. in, right. in all likelihood. Now. Things will be different. <laughs> I want to. There yeah, will I be. Wanna, I want to quote the guy from the Oppenheimer movie. Can we do better than likely? <laughs> Is it a little better than likely not? Are we? Okay. Over, I, I would, I, okay. I, I would, right. I would yeah. be comfortable uh, with overwhelmingly okay. unlikely. Okay. 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 Um, so the and, and and frankly the 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 route I would see to some kind of species extinction is if there was some kind of mass hysteria relating to the apocalyptic sort of cultiness of this that somehow. Uh, uh, incentivized our leaders to nuke each other. That would be about the most straight line I could see from climate change to a, a species-wide extinction. Now, that said, that it is not a species-wide extinction does not mean that it is not a problem yeah. and does not mean that, that, that there aren't real issues here that we should think about and, and, and deal with. And frankly, I think it would behoove us as conservatives to hold that line and say, you know, we it it may be happening, but you don't know what the what the full impact is, and you're not prepared to deal with it seriously. Holding that tack, reclaiming the rationale in this conversation, I think would be very very good for the party, and it would really let us get a handle on I think some of these issues, and and perhaps sort of overturn the apple cart of this weird uh, uh, parochial, non academic, unserious image that the party has. You will hear from John Kerry. Or Al Gore, more John Kerry lately than Al Gore, but you will hear from them that the United States must take a leadership role on this, which is why they are so uh, supportive of not only entering international treaties, but doing the kinds of things, endowing certain kinds of corporate activity that you were talking about in the first segment here. What you will hear from elements of the other side is um, whatever America does or doesn't do, if we're talking about global problem, global climate change, global warming, the word global in front of it, what America does or doesn't do is relatively insignificant. True? False? Somewhere in the middle? Uh, I, I would say somewhere in the middle. And, and let me make this point um, that the, the bulk of U.S. Uh, emissions reduction, I think 92 percent of U.S. emissions reduction, something like that, uh, is not due to the adoption of green tech as the Greens would have us. It is due to the modernization of old infrastructure and the movement from coal to natural gas as a result of fracking, which was opposed heavily by the Greens for decades and nevertheless has reduced emissions 13 times more than the cumulative efforts of all of the Greens' activities vis-a-vis -vis green energy. So I would say that, that there is a puritanism that haunts the left on this issue that, that the right desperately needs to exploit. Because if we can show ourselves to be practically minded about this— willing to actually engage and have a conversation and, and soberly think about the, the, the trade-offs here, we can do a lot with that. There is a big appetite, I think, out there for a sane conversation. And, and Go ahead. The, 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 what we need to be thinking about is rather than an extinction-level event, this is going to be massive infrastructure issues. This is going to be uh, uh, massive disruptions to global trade. And this is going to be massive humanitarian issues away from our shores. One of the areas we failed is in dealing with what should the United States' role in the world be. And if we want to include those humanitarian disasters as part of the larger conversation about our wider ideals, our ethics, and the, the world we want to be in, I think there's definitely room for that, but not 
in the current way it's being discussed. All right. Let me talk to you about that puritanism when we come right back. Lewis Hallman and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman has been my guest. He is the managing director at Insight Analytics, LLC. You want to take a moment and just tell the audience what Insight Analytics does before we go further? Absolutely. So Insight Analytics is a management consulting firm. We offer uh, analytic and financial consulting services to small businesses, uh, typically uh, from $1 million a year in revenue to $100 million a year in revenue. Uh, if you would like uh, assistance in setting budgets, in pricing your services, in looking at growth and expansion, or just want more clarity in your business, Insight Analytics is happy to provide that. Good. Thank you for that, Lewis. Previous uh, segment, you were talking about uh, the word you used was puritanism. There's a puritanism in some of the uh, energies, exertions, uh, and statements of the um, – uh, of the of of the climate uh, of the climate movement climate change movement and i'm wondering if that puritanism my sense of it is is that puritanism itself borders and crosses uncomfortably into its own science denial i i, I absolutely agree with you okay. uh, i i, I think that there is a lot of sort of richness and and hypocrisy from the left being you know, claiming that they're the ones that, that are the, the guardians of science. And again, you know, this is something that we, we talked at length about through the, the whole COVID well, debacle. That's right, right. And, and, and through, and, and it also applies, I, I think, very well to the, the climate change debacle. You know, in, in saying that you are the party of science and reason, you're making the case that the, 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 the frame of analysis that you use holds all of the answers. And it, it seems to me to be woefully unsatisfactory. You know, looking back at, at, the COVID issue, you know, at what role should educating our children and providing for their future, you know, be a priority against the well-being of the most elderly amongst us? And and there was not really a conversation to be had there. And, and, and the thing about that as well is that those kinds of questions are inherently moral conversations, not factual ones. They are not scientific questions, and they are not open to scientific inquiry. We have to negotiate these answers from our values. And by pretending that everything is an empirical question, I think that we, we rob ourselves of the ability to do that. And I, I think we lose a lot of the, the richness of that, that story, that, I, I, that collective story that I think motivates us. You know, we, we, we talked last week about the fact that humans are motivated by story and that we see ourselves as characters in stories. That's why language evolved and, and that's how language works really. And part of the issue, I think, is that we have this simplistic uh, 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 notion within us where, you know, if, if you're against the main character in the story, you're the villain. And we can look at our own intentions and see our own hearts, but we are utterly ignorant of those of, our, of the rest of the world. And so it's very easy, I think, for someone who is young and naive to say, I'm well-meaning. I've been told all of these things that seem to be true by people who don't seem to consistently lie to me. And why are you cruel? Because you're not on board. Right. Why are you being a cruel man? Right. Or, and, and, and because, keep in mind, you know, the, the left does most of its rationalizing through the, the notion, through the, the, the moral lens of harm reduction. Right. right, right. And so it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's you are a cruel thing right. for not agreeing with to this my notion, of ridic- despite yep. the fact that right. there may be other things going on, or there may be a, a mediated conversation or side effects, right? But right. but punching that, but punching through that that 
casing, right, that innate uh, uh, inertia of I'm the protagonist. I've been told a version of the good. There are people that disagree with me. Being able to have that conversation is enormously challenging. And I think that that that, that is the step that we are missing as conservatives. Yeah, there is this continuum well it's not a continuum there is this division between morality and science and 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 the division needs i think more inclusion of one group with the other you need to i think have them both in there together what's interesting to me it it has to be part of the same conversation in other words what's interesting to me though is how the left has been able to seize this mantle of science denial and violating in that in that in that sense both things morality and science. So we saw this throughout COVID. We thought that uh, for for the most part the left position or the the more left position on on COVID, we thought it had scientific problems. We thought it was ignoring the science, right. the data, the kind of stuff week in and week out. You and your dad and I were going through. Right. Right. And and. and you know, they, at they, the same they, time, violating all kinds of cherry picking variables. Questions. Yes, a- right. a- absolutely. Um, but, they, know, but we were the science deniers. I, we were labeled. We were identified as the science so, deniers. So that particular piece, as, as to why it always seems that the conservatives are the science deniers, I, I, I think is a piece of artificial pageantry more mm-hmm. than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think that this is an artifact of uh, the the issues that. Uh, one of your favorites people wrote about in the closing of the American mind. Oh, Alan yeah. Bloom. yeah. Uh, in, when, when we see the, the left take over academia and firmly uh, uh, really push the conservatives out, which I think happened kind of by the end of the 70s, really, because yeah. bef- before then you actually had a sizable minority that, that were conservatives. And now I think it's like sub 10, sub 5 yep. percent, some, some very tiny, tiny number. Right. And so with the conservatives exiled from the halls of academia, um, it's very easy to have all of the STEM teachers be liberals mm-hmm. yeah. and therefore claim, not through any sort of philosophical uh, 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 rationale that they are the party of science, but through representation. Mm-hmm. They are the party of the scientists, mm-hmm. at least those that are paid ostensibly to do science on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do then is we need to note, and, and again, I think this comes back to the issue of a single system expert. Note that these scientists, while good and capable and adroit at their own fields, they're unable, perhaps, or unwilling to draw larger conclusions and synthesize their expertise with others to create a larger solution that benefits the whole of society rather than just the immediate panic button issue of the day. This unable to draw larger conclusions thing is the tell, because what's interesting is when they retreat into that statement and they say, well, I can't draw a conclusion about that, while they are willing to draw conclusions and moral conclusions and that on other things. I think that's the tell. We're going to wrap up in a minute here, but you saw this with no one more exemplar than Anthony Fauci, who would say, well, you can't have congregate settings, you can't have large family uh, holiday gatherings, including Thanksgiving. And then when he was testifying before the United States Senate, he was asked about, but what about BLM protests? And he said, well, I can't, I don't have an opinion on that. All of a sudden on that congregate setting, no opinion. It's an interesting retreat into um, this unable to draw conclusion um, uh, uh, cocoon. Let Let me take the break and finish the show with you on that thought when we come right back. 
Well, thanks for uh, being uh, in with us uh, this hour at Lewis Holman. This has been great. I didn't know we were going to discuss this today. I'm so glad we did. We were talking a little bit about science, a little bit about morality, a little bit about the bloody crossroads, where they meet and where they don't. Uh, I'll let you finish up with any thoughts you want. You can involve uh, a, a defense of capitalism if you want or a corruption of it, wherever you want. How about we do American exceptionalism? Do that, was, that was another thing out of your, your monologue okay. that I, I like listening to. Okay. So. I, I maybe have a weird view on this, actually. Um, as, as far as I can tell, I, I, I don't like the, the notion that there is something inherent in the soil and the air and in our souls that just makes us a more moral, a better people than, than others. I, I think that that's the wrong interpretation of American exceptionalism. Instead, I think there are several things that happened. The first was a historical right place, right time, the end of the, the age of enlightenment when we start to see the values liberté, égalité, fraternité uh, crystallized. That is sort of the, the, the starting point of our republic. Um, we also have uh, a, a continent that was unpeopled that we were then filling. And, and that, I think, is the root of more of our American exceptionalism than we realize, that one could go out on one's own into the, you know, into the West and within six months be exporting grain down the Mississippi without having to file a permit or do anything. That created the nation of self-reliance, frontiersmen, small towns, and loose, interconnected, decentralized commerce that created the conditions of freedom that we know and love and cherish today. And this is, this is not something that just goes on autopilot. The fact is that there isn't something special about the air that we breathe. American exceptionalism is the values that we hold, and those values need to be kept. We need to, we need to uphold them and pass them on to subsequent generations, or else we risk losing them. American exceptionalism is absolutely something that I believe in. We, we have a unique and special place in the world with our, our economic might, our militaristic abilities, our, our moral position as the shining city on the hill. We are a unique place and a unique peoples. But if we, if we let arrogance overtake our, our understanding of the world, then we are at risk of losing that position. That's really quite beautiful. It's about the formulation and foundation of our government and the people it created, the kind of people it created. The phrase that kept wanting to be birthed from those that list of examples, that series of examples you gave is the notion of rugged individualism. Absolutely. And if you look at our founding and what it stood for more than anything else, it was individual rights. You can't have individualism, the individual as 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 primary without individual rights. To the degree that we vitiate, we weaken, we attenuate individual rights in this country is the degree to which we become less and less exceptional. Our revolution was the triumph of the individual over the collective of the state monarchy. Let's keep it that way. Thank you, Lewis Hallman. Bless you. Until tomorrow, folks, I'm Seth Liebson. On behalf of David Dahl and the rest, class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.